Well, the uh, conversations we've been having this fall have been about the space that God gives us for our questions. We call this not sure. Um, we oftentimes think that faith requires us to be sure, to be certain of something. And yet God invites us not to know. It's okay to be unsure. Um, it's okay because it creates space, not for intellectual laziness, but to pursue truth and to go deeper in our faith. Now, one of the things that many of us are particularly unsure about in our modern culture today is this idea of judgment, judgment. We know that Jesus teaches about this, that he says, you know, don't judge others, and we're kind of drawn to that. But that he also says that all of us will be judged by God in some way. And we're not sure about that. So I want to explore that with you today a little bit, um, and I want to invite you to read the Bible uh, with me. Well, let's look at one of the things that Jesus said, and, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And if you'll let me, I'll, I'd like to read for us today. It's a little bit longer passage, um, but open up a Bible or uh, navigate over on your device to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if, if you're struggling or coming to believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you, a stranger, and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but what we read never will. Jesse Pinkman was not sure. Now, some of you may remember the name Jesse Pinkman. He was a character in the TV series Breaking Bad. He was the young guy who ended up being recruited by his former chemistry, high school chemistry teacher uh, to produce crystal meth and, and deal drugs. And one, in one scene in Breaking Bad, this young Jesse Pinkman is uh, sitting in a circle of people at a Narconics Anonymous meeting. And there's a therapist in that circle and he's trying to get everyone to tell a story. Jesse tells a little bit of his story, kind of thinly veiled, and um, the therapist senses some hesitation and he says to Jesse, we're not here to sit in judgment. Now this triggers Jesse and he says, he just kind of explodes, he says, why not? Why not? If you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? So no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just what? Do an inventory and accept? It's having an argument about judgment. And the therapist is saying, we're not here to judge. And Jesse's going, why not? Maybe... I need judgment. And it's kind of an interesting argument. And what it does is it ends up putting the viewer on the spot. And the question is, where do you sit? Do you sit with the therapist? No judgment here. Or do you sit with Jesse? I yearn for judgment. And what the viewer knows that nobody except for Jesse knows in that circle is that uh, he's just killed somebody. I mean, not a dog, but a human being. He actually came to the meeting in order to find addicts to, to deal more drugs to. And so, uh, what do we do with that? Well, they're not sure. We're not sure. On the one hand, we understand the therapist's desire to care for people and to create an environment of care. On the other hand, we understand Jesse's cry for accountability in a world that so often goes awry. So the question for us then is, well, where do we sit in this circle? And I think the truth is, for many of us, well, we're just not sure. And we're not sure what we think about what Jesus has to say to us here in Matthew 25. He's essentially telling his, father, his followers, there will be a judgment at the end of history. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from his goats. I mean, this is judgment. We don't think of Jesus this way, but this is Jesus on a throne as a king at the end of time before all people, all nations offering judgment. He's saying there will be a judgment at the end of history. So too does St. Paul, the apostle, he, he writes, for all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. We say it when we say the Apostles' Creed together, and we, which we did not long ago. You know, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, 
quick doesn't mean fast in this. It means living, the, the living and the dead. So the question is, well, what is the judgment of Jesus all about? And here's the surprise of the text. The two things that these two people at N.A. had trouble reconciling hold together in Jesus. That is to say, Jesus' judgment is an act both of unconditional care and ultimate accountability together. And we can see this in this text. We see the accountability in this text. Matthew is at pains to describe Jesus as a king in his gospel. And here he uses the image from Daniel chapter 7 of a figure who arises before the ancient of days. The son of man stands before him to receive a dominion that will have no end. A king. And there's a sense of accountability in that image, right? But the interesting thing and surprise in this text is the accountability isn't first and foremost for what we've done or not done, it's actually for how we have responded to this king. Because that's, that. notice, uh, when did we ever see you? It's a question of how did you respond to the king that begins to shape how you act w- with others? So there is accountability, but it's a, we're accountable for how we respond to Jesus, primarily. And there also is care. Now Jesus, this king, re- refers to himself with an image, and he uses the metaphor of a shepherd. Um, Jesus would oftentimes use this metaphor him for instance. This is an image of care, shepherd. Uh, Matthew would tell us that he'd be the kind of shepherd who would leave one sheep, uh, 99 sheep behind uh, to go find that one lost uh, sheep. It's a caring uh, shepherd. Apparently shepherds at this time would divide their flock in the evening because the animals needed different kinds of care. Goats didn't have the fleece, so they would have to be separated from the sheet in order to be huddled together to stay warm through the Palestinian nights. And so too, we see here a picture of God's care for the hungry, the sick, the naked, the foreigner. All of these verbs boil down to one phrase, efficiently summing it up at the end of this a series of repetitions, taking care. In verse 44, you did not take care. And that is the heart of the, sh- of the shepherd, is to take care. And so the, the surprise of the text is, here we see this king who does not come with a punitive impulse, but f- with a restorative one. This is the long-awaited and promised Jewish Messiah coming to make the world right to beat the swords into plowshares, to lift up the lowly, to let the lion graze with the lamb, uh, to to take care of the foreigner. Even the trees of the earth will clap their hands before this king because he's come to make the world right. Now, this is not a Messiah who asks us to sit in one seat or the other, but who brings them both together. And unfortunately, we don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. How do we hold care and accountability together? So let me give you an example of this. Um, Jesse Pinkman, and I know not everybody's seen Breaking Bad, and I'm not necessarily re- urging you to rush out and see it. It's a very dark uh, series. But Jesse Pinkman, this character, needs to sit in both of these seats. This what we find is so interesting about him. He yearns for accountability. That murderous impulse that first wells up in him, does so because his girlfriend's kid brother gets killed by a drug agent. 
and a drug dealer. And it just enrages him. One of the most endearing and important things about Jesse is that he loves children. And he'd do anything to protect children or to avenge them. He's kind of like a fierce superhero that you end up sort of rooting for him at this point when he's like, yeah, let's go get the bad guys who hurt kids. See, see he yearns for accountability. And we kind of do with him. He also yearns for care. Young Jesse needs a father figure in his life, someone who will care for him. Walter White is the chemistry teacher, and Jesse falls into Walter White's arms because he's kind of been pushed out of the house by his natural parents uh, because they haven't figured out how to deal with his um, drug abuse. Thing about Walter White is, I mean, he's a bad, bad, bad guy who takes Jesse into dark places, but he always has open arms for Jesse. He always comes back to Jesse and pulls him in. And Jesse can't say no to that kind of care. He yearns for it. And, and, and this is what makes him go ballistic in that NA meeting. It, it's the tension between these two deep needs. He can't resolve these yearnings. He's saying essentially, give me judgment, but don't judge me. And which is it going to be? Well, we're not sure. And we're not sure about judgment. On the one hand, we don't want judgment. We sit right there next to that therapist and say, hey, no judgment here. I don't want to judge you, and I don't want you to judge me. I mean, don't we all want to live in a world of difference where there's mutual understanding and appreciation? We do. We want to sit with that therapist. So just some examples of that. Carl Rogers, the psychologist, he tells us that in order for anybody to grow, they must receive, what is his phrase, unconditional positive regard meaning it has to be a safe environment where you have to know you're valuable. You have to feel self-esteem growing inside of you. It's so important. We also believe with Sam Harris that at times it's not fair to judge. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist who wrote the book Free Will. At the beginning of the book Free Will, he tells the story of two men who uh, uh, perpetrate these horrific crimes. And he says, but we can't really judge them because they're actually determined by past experiences and brain chemistry so that they're not really fully morally responsible for these acts. And he writes, the idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for the character of our uh, mental lives and subsequent behavior, behavior is simply impossible to map onto reality. Right? He's saying these people, they need care, not judgment. And we don't want judgment in our theology either. I mean, let's be honest. Wouldn't it be better to have a God who didn't have judgment? We all kind of feel this way. Charles Taylor, the philosopher I mentioned last week, uh, says this is a feature of the modern, postmodern era. He calls it the decline of hell. We tend to say, he writes these days, to celebrate such a terrible act of violence as a crucifixion, for example, is to make this, and to make this the center of your religion, you have to be sick. You have to be perversely attached to self-mutilation because it assuages your self-hatred or calms your fears of healthy self-affirmation. You're elevating self-punishment, which liberating humanism wants to banish as a pathology. So, so how could God judge us? I mean, if evil is just a chemical reaction between your ears and judgment is a pathology, 
Of course God won't judge anybody. We just seem to know that in the modern age. We think we know that. The point here is that we're not sure we want judgment at all. We say to anyone, I say to you, and we say to God, just give me your care. On the other hand, and the good Hebrew philosopher will always have another hand, we're not sure that care all by itself is enough to make a difference in the world. The fact is we yearn. We yearn for judgment. We want to sit with Jesse and say, when we see things in the world, that's not right, right? Like you cut me off on the freeway and you're toast, right? No, that's not a good example. I mean, I feel that way, but it's not a good illustration. of. The, but there's, let's say you see a child who's being hurt somewhere in the, in the world, right? How, how do you feel about that? A child is being hurt? Oh my gosh, right? So there's something that wells up inside of us that says that's not right. And I gotta say, you know, these days I watch the news and I find myself wanting to howl at the screen sometimes and just go, that's not right. Not only the things that are happening in the world, but the way the story is being told. Something, even the bias of the reporter exercises me. Well, Vince Gilligan, who's the creator of Breaking Bad, he said the, the lesson of the whole series is that actions have consequences. And in an interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air one time, he quotes his girlfriend who says, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe there's a hell. I learned last week that judgmental, which we think of as a really bad thing, a no-no, has actually not always been a negative word in the English language. It's not listed in the Oxford English Dictionary uh, uh, up to 1971. It's not even listed as a word. If you look there, you'll see the word judgmatical, which was a positive thing, meaning like discern, discerning or something like that. And it's not until the very next edition of the OED that we get the first recorded significant use of the word judgmental in a negative way. Isn't that interesting? Now we just assume it's negative, but for most of the history of the English language, judgmental was a good thing. I mean, judgmatical was a good thing. So the point is that judgment can be a really positive thing, and this is kind of what you hope for when you see a good movie, right? That the good guys will win, the bad guys will lose, and we want to live in reality, believing that that is the case as well. So here's an example of that. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf writes this, and this is a little long, but there's a story embedded in it, so forgive me. Volf writes, I used to think that wrath wrath, was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful, wrathful against some of them. Did you get to that? I just want to make sure you got that. God is love and loves every person and every creature and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. Wolf writes, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, he's Croatian, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the uh, perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the blood path? 
but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. It's kind of mind-bending. But he's got a point there. I mean, we're not sure we can live in this world without the hope of judgment. And so we cry out, give us your accountability. Conflicted, right? That's what I, I want you to feel. We don't want judgment and we do want judgment. We don't know how to hold care and accountability together. We don't know how to sit in both of these seats in that circle. And I want to suggest to you that I think it's tearing us apart. Our, our marriages, our families, our society, our churches. If you haven't yet seen it, I encourage you to read the article that was published last week in The Atlantic called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. Very interesting article um, about how we're, pu- we're pulling each other apart these days. Reminds me of a story about the man who's on the desert island, you know, and the ship comes up and rescues him. And he gives him a little tour of the island, tells him how he had survived for so long. And he goes, oh, there are three huts. And he goes, what's this hut? And they go, this is my home. I, I slept here. And they go, what's this hut? And he goes, oh, this is my church. This is where I worship. And they go, oh, well, what's this other hut? He goes, oh, that's the church I used to go to, right? <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's funny, but it's, you know, not. Um, So, how do we hold care and accountability together? How do we do it? Which chair do we sit in, right? Well, wrong question. Matthew is trying to teach his his readers that it's not about which chair you sit in, it's about where you kneel. It's about kneeling before this particular king, Jesus, the crucified king. That's what makes a difference for Matthew. This is where he takes us. And here's the point today. Jesus is the source for unconditional care and ultimate accountability. He's the source. Come, he says, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It comes from Jesus. Now, whenever you read the Bible, you always want to step back and ask the context question just to check your interpretation. And I want you to see the context of this verse. Matthew is leading his readers to the cross. That's where this goes, very next, very next scene. He's leading his readers to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see the tension resolved. It's at the cross that God, his great act of unconditional care and God's great act of ultimate accountability come together. This is, this is the center of history at the cross of Jesus Christ. So I, what I'd like you to see is that the cross is an act of God's accountability, right? When, when you come to the cross and you look at the cross, you see the effects of your sin and my sin and humanity's sin. It's at the cross that God says no to the powers of sin and death and the cosmic powers of evil, this is God's final answer, no. It all ends here. It's accountability in the, in the largest possible sense. And it's an act of care. 
Because it's at the cross that we find God's limitless, inexhaustible care for us. Here, he says to you and me, the sinners, yes, yes to you. You know, they say something is worth only what a buyer will pay for it. If you want to know what you're worth to God, ask yourself, what has God paid for you? You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, God's one and only son. God has preferred you to him in some way that I can't understand, but that marks our value, total care. So when we come to the cross, we see God saying, I care for you, and I, I hold the world accountable for what hurts you. By the way, this is not only true judgment, this is also the heart of true love, holding both of these things together. So I don't know what happens to Jesse Pinkman. I mean, he's just a fiction. But I can tell you about another man who's in recovery right now. Um, he's a guy's been very successful in his career. He's very wealthy. But he has uh, betrayed his wife. He's been cheating on her. And he's a believer. He's coming to faith in Jesus. And, he, he, you know, what won't help this guy is to say, hey, you jerk. You know, you're scumbag. It's not going to help him. Like, harsh accountability. What's also not going to help him is just to go, hey, you know what, whatever, live and let live, forgive and forget, none of it really matters, just walk away, you know, some kind of false sense of care. No, he's coming to the cross, and what he's doing at the cross is he's discovering how much he's worth, what, how much he's loved, he's, the, the limitless love of God. He's trying to believe all that for himself and take that in, and that is giving him the courage then to hear God's no on the ways in which his life has been broken and in the ways in which he has hurt other people. And now the cross becomes a pathway of being embraced in love but being walking in a new way of integrity and responsibility. That's, that's, that's transformational. Care and accountability. Jesus is the source. Fleming Rutledge writes, God's attitude towards us has always and ever been the same. Judgment against sin is preceded, accompanied, and followed by God's mercy. There was never a time when God was against us. Even in his wrath, he's for us. Yet at the same time, he's not for us without wrath because his will is, catch this, to destroy all that is hostile to perfecting his world. The paradox of the cross demonstrates the victorious love of God for us at the same time that it shows forth his judgment upon sin. That's, that's Fleming Rutledge, the crucifixion. This is the good news. This is what Jesus is all about. This is what the Bible is all about. If you've got this, you've got everything. Let me just give you some examples from the Bible, some quick quotes. God forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Romans 3, 26 tells us that God has done this so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5 says Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. Peter tells us he himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds. 
you have been healed. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5 says, for, this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the point. At the cross, God holds humanity accountable. He is the one who is just. He addresses our sin. He takes the, the, the he, what Paul says, the, 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 the record of the charges against me, against you, and he nails it to the cross and puts it to death so that there is therefore now no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. At the cross, he's not only just saying no, he's also the justifier saying yes. He absorbs the wrath of heaven against all evil in himself so that we can walk away unscathed. That's grace. That's the gospel. Now you say, wait, you might say, wait, wait a minute, George, what about Matthew? Doesn't Matthew make it sound like this has to do with our deeds, whether we're good to people or not? And I want to tell you, you think you're missing the point if you think that. No, the point is, it's our response to Jesus that shapes our destiny. And it's our response to Jesus that shapes the way we will relate to people. That's Matthew's point. He's drawing us to the cross. Matthew says that Jesus will save his people. From, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1. Matthew says the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20. Matthew says that Jesus says to the sinner, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's what Matthew thinks. And so here's the great surprise of the text. It's the one who's on the throne. It's the one before whom we kneel. This is a crucified king, a crucified Messiah, and he's the source of unconditional care and unlimited accountability, which only leaves one last question for you and for me, and that's this. Who's on the throne for you? Who do you let judge you? There is a choice to be made. There is an invitation here, isn't there? Come, Jesus says. So let me ask you, do you carry your own certificate of debt around with you? Is it still there pinned to your shirt like when you were in first grade? All the stuff I've done wrong, all the stuff I will do wrong. Do you wear it wherever you walk? Do you let others create a list of things to which you're accountable and march to their tune? Do you, carry, do you dare carry this list of offenses before a holy God someday on judgment day and join the hordes of those who will gather before Jesus saying, when did we ever see you? as though they don't even know him? Or will you let him take this and rip it off your shirt and nail it to the cross, that it be buried in the depths of the sea? Will you come to say yes to Jesus? Because there's something at the cross that says that's not right and no judgment here. And it's in that space before this Savior that we flourish. Those who kneel at his throne in the middle of history will dance before it at the end of history. So who's on your throne? Someone constantly demanding accountability that you can never quite reach? Or someone who doesn't care enough to get past the whatever, just do it? Or is Jesus on your throne? Have you bowed the knee to him? Have you said, be my king above all else? Have you come to say yes to him? If you haven't, why not? 
Come and say yes to Jesus today. If there's something stirring in your heart as you hear these messages, I assure you it's not me. It might be the Holy Spirit saying you belong to him. So after the service, you're invited after the final music to come up. Our prayer team will be here. Um, Come click the chat button that will allow you to interact with somebody online. Or, or navigate over to upc.org slash Jesus. We want to pray with you. We want to help you understand this decision you're making and help you just have confidence that you know you have salvation in Jesus Christ. We also want to give you a few gifts that will help you get started in that new relationship with him. But finally, let me just say, here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. That a Christian is uniquely someone who lives on the other side of judgment. You know, on the other side of it. Right, Because the Christian has come to kneel before this great act of judgment in the middle of history and they know that they will dance, therefore, at the throne at the end of history. So yes, someday I will stand before this throne and give an account, but I have no fear because Jesus tells us on that day there's going to be something familiar about this king. Something familiar. Somewhere I have experienced this king who has met me When I was hungry for the bread of life, he was there. When I was locked and imprisoned in my sin, he was there. When I was naked in my shame before a good and holy God, he was there. I met him at the cross. And what I know is that those who say yes now will fear no condemnation because we know the crucified king already. And he's already told us what he's going to say in that moment to us. Come, you that are blessed of my Father. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for your mystery that you would invite us to come under the shelter of your grace so that the righteous wrath of heaven when it comes to make the world right would not touch us in the least. Thank you for the salvation the work of our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross. For those of us who have not said yes to him, we just want to lift them up in prayer and ask that you would open the eyes of their heart, you would take any veil away, that you would help them hear you speaking personally to them because your love is for them as well. And we pray that we'll yearn for for this kind of a judgment, not because you've promised it, but because we don't want to live in a world in which you are not the king of all of creation. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.